The two sides of the immigration backlash, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Voters are upset about the U.S.-Mexico border and the increase in illegal crossings under President Biden. But they also reacted negatively to former President Trump's crackdowns. To what extent are voter reactions driven by actual on-the-ground circumstances where they live? And to what extent should we expect them to always move against the direction of policy? Immigration has become more important in our politics, making it more like Europe. This week, we learned from new research on both sides about voter reaction to immigration itself and anti-immigration politics. This week, I talked to Ernesto Tiburcio of Tufts University about his new paper with Kara Ross Camarena, The Local Reaction to Unauthorized Mexican Migration to the U.S. He finds that flows of unauthorized migrants into the U.S. have moved Americans and local governments in a conservative political direction. And areas that have seen more unauthorized immigration start voting more Republican and redirect expenditures away from services and toward enforcement. But the backlash may run both ways. I also talked to Alexander Kustoff from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, about his Public Opinion Quarterly article with James Dennison, Reverse Backlash. In Europe, he finds that radical right party success has softened views of immigrants and immigration. But his work also finds that anti-immigration voters everywhere prioritize the issue more than those who favor immigration. Voters seem to react to real immigration and real political threats to immigration, with some key differences in the United States, but also some factors that fit the global pattern. To start, I asked Ernesto about the key findings from his new paper on the U.S. So what were the biggest findings and takeaways uh, from your new paper on backlash to unauthorized migration in the U.S.? Hi, hi, Matt. Thank you. Thank you for having me uh, in the podcast. Uh, what, what Karen Rosca Marina and I found is that the inflows of unauthorized Mexican migration generate a conservative response at the local level in the U.S. This conservative response has uh, two dimensions to, to fit. One is an electoral response, and what we see is an increase in the voucher for the Republican Party in federal elections. We study House elections and presidential elections, um, both in, in midterm years and presidential years. So that's the electoral response. And in policy terms, we also see a conservative change that is that is consistent with, with the Republican Party. And this is a decrease in total expenditure at the local level. We, we study expenditures of all local agencies inside local governments, inside of a county geographically. So county governments, city governments, townships, special districts, and school districts. We see a decline in total expenditure and a decline in education expenditure, which is largest, as you know, at the, at the local level in the U.S. And we see an increase in the relative uh, share of expenditures that go to um, policing and the administration of justice. In terms of magnitudes, um, I'm going to tell you um, specifically for, for the electoral responses, a one percentage point increase in the, in the flow of unauthorized Mexican migrants, uh, which is equivalent from going to um, percentile 25 to percentile 75 in our distribution, that 0.1 percentage point increase raises the voucher for the Republican Party in House midterm elections by uh, one percentage point, roughly speaking. Is that a lot or a little? Well, in our in our uh, period of analysis that goes from 2010 until 2018, in those three midterm elections, um, there were around 100 races um, at the county level, granted not at the electoral district level, but at the county level, that were decided by less than one percentage point. So we think that this 
this reaction to, to the inflow of unauthorized Mexican migrants could have, could have actually decided elections, um, legislative elections. So describe these new measures that you have of un- unauthorized uh, migrants and, and why uh, they, they matter. We use a confidential data set on unlikely unauthorized migrants who obtained a consular ID in one of the over 50 Mexican consulates in the U.S. We are not the first ones to use this data set, but we are the first ones to use this data set to study uh, the effect of, of uh, flows of unauthorized migrants in the U.S. Um, the working assumption, our working assumption, and, and that of uh, people that have used this data set in the past, is that migrants or everyone who obtains a consular ID is uh, almost everyone unauthorized. And the reason for that is that authorized migrants can obtain IDs issued by government agencies in the US. So if you can obtain an ID that would be more useful, why not doing that, right? The the relative value of, of a consular ID is significantly higher for people that cannot have access to other types of, of identifications. And in the, in the manuscript, um, we compare the, um, the, we make a correlation between the share of or, or number of, of unauthorized migrants, Mexican migrants in, in a county using our measure with um, the number of unauthorized migrants using other measures. For example, the, the classic residual method that among others, uh, Piri, Mylan Steingras use, and there's a strong correlation, right? So, so it's not like we are measuring a very different population. As I said, there is there is a an important overlap, but we think that we are better able to capture this specific population of unauthorized Mexican migrants. Um, importantly, though, um, the Mexican um, government through the through the consulates do not ask at all for for migration status. So it's just the assumption that, that that we make, and again, we're not the only ones that make that assumption, but but that assumption is is uh, widely shared. So you also uh, consider both um, economic and more cultural uh, prejudice um, explanations uh, or mechanisms for uh, your your findings, um, and I know there's been somewhat of a wider debate trying to differentiate those, but but mostly finding that they kind of work in tandem. So where where is where is your work? Uh, kind of play, what are your findings and, and how does it place within that uh, research? Yeah, so so the, the again, the, the Alessina and Tavellini um, literature review, uh, besides pointing at this, at this general conservative response, they also highlight two different sorts of explanations behind the conservative response. One uh, is something that I, that I call economic grievance, or that others call economic grievance, which is the idea that there might be certain competitions in certain sectors uh, that might generate um, this, this this conservative response. And the other is the existence of non-economic mechanisms that could also explain that there might be no job loss, no changes in wages, no changes in demand or supply of absolutely anything, but there might be some sort of um, distaste for for uh, for migrants in general. And and the literature shows evidence in favor of both. We engage with that literature and test different mechanisms. So um, before telling you what, what, what we find, the hypothesis that we were able to reject, let me tell you the hypothesis that we were not able to reject, meaning um, the, the, the results that are not statistically significant. So inflows of unauthorized Mexican migration do not have a discernible 
effect on average wage levels, average employment levels, average, or not average, just unemployment levels, and crime levels. And this is very important. I think that um, highlighting these null effects is almost as important as highlighting all the, the, the statistically significant effects. Um, and also in line with a bunch of literatures, right? The literature on migration and crime and the economic effects of migration. So, so no general effects there. We do find three evidence in favor of three interrelated mechanisms. Now, this paper is not a paper about the mechanisms, so we cannot really tell the timing and how they interact with each other. We would need an additional instrument, but at least we, we can shed light on, on the general um, trends, these, these variables that are moving along with, uh, with, um, with electoral and, and policy responses. So one is uh, we observe what we think is formal job loss in migrant intensive sectors. So we see a decline in formal employment in the sector of construction and in the sector of hospitality and leisure. Now, since I told you that we do not observe a general decline in, in employment levels, I should tell you that we see an increase in formal employment in manufacturing. So we observe some sort of job switching, um, but that nonetheless, this job switching may, may be economically challenging for people that are losing their jobs. And, and we also observe a marginal increase in poverty uh, that we think is associated with this job loss, or this, this, we call it temporary job loss. Right? So that's, a, that's the first mechanism. So support for economic grievance. Second, we see um, evidence in favor of two non-economic mechanisms. The first one is an, an increase uh, in um, negative bias against the outgroup. Um, we use the replication files of a famous paper, a 2020 paper by Ben Enke, who studies um, the correlation between measure of universalism, moral universalism, um, and um, political behavior. And these changes, these, these changes at the county level, so it, it, it matches our, our, um, um, our measure of inflows very well. And what we see is that these inflows decrease this measure of uh, relative universalism. And what relative universalism is, this is, it comes from, again, from the replication files from Enki, and it's based on uh, the humorals um, survey, the humorals uh, questionnaire. And what this, what this says is that people place less moral emphasis on the out-group relative to the in-group. You can think of the in-group as people from your own uh, religion, your own uh, racial group. So, so the citizens play less, place less moral emphasis on, or more moral emphasis on the in-group relative to the out-group. In-group is the groups that I told you, and the out-group is people from a different uh, background, a different group. They can be migrants themselves. So that's the other thing that we see. Interestingly, this effect seems to be stronger or concentrated in areas that see more economic grievance. So we think that these two might be related. Right? Uh, again, this is uh, suggestive evidence, but at least they, they tend to move together. Right? This, this, this uh, bias and economic grievance. So that would be the second mechanism. And the third mechanism, and this is linked with the literature of internal, the effects of internal migration in the US, is that inflows of unauthorized Mexican uh, migration 
gener generate white flight and residential sorting. We see that the white population in the, in the counties tend to decrease and we see more out migration. Now, this, this compositional effect, we know two pieces of the comp compositional effect. We know that the racial piece, we know that there's less white population in these counties, and we know that the people that leave is uh, relatively non-poor people. But we do not know whether these people are more Republican, more Democrat, or so, so that is that complicates a little bit the analysis because we don't know if we're estimating a lower bound or an upper bound of our effects. It may well be the case that people that are leaving are relatively more Democrat, but that they may also have a distaste for migration. If, if, if the people that were leaving were Republicans, we would, would be estimating an, uh, a lower bound. So that's, that's the third mechanism. And we think that this is important because it links, as I said, with the, um, the literature on, on the, the effects of, um, of internal migration in the U.S. For example, all the, um, all, all, all the, um, the literature on um, the Great Migration and how uh, the inflow of, of black citizens from the South generated white flight and, and, and other changes in cities in the North. Um, so, so, so yeah, we, we present evidence of, in favor of both mechanisms. Now, we do not find any heterogeneity based on, on county characteristics, except for one. Areas that have a more progressive taxation, and we proxy, we proxy progressive taxation by the ratio of income um, to sales taxes, so areas that have a more progressive taxation, or where the safety net covers a larger share of the poor population, here we use TAMF, Right? This is at the state level. So states where TAMF covers a larger share of the poor population of the state, those areas see consistently a more muted response, both in terms of the main uh, political effects and the mechanisms, which, which suggests that there is policy able to mitigate the reaction that we observe. We don't know exactly how the mitigation occurs. We think that this is probably... This probably has to do with compensation of economic losers, so so that supports the the uh, the economic hypothesis that, that that we're testing. But since the economic hypotheses are linked also with a with a measure of of negative outgroup bias, uh, we don't know exactly how that operates. But we do know that these areas that are, by the way, not particularly liberal areas. Um, are areas that are better able to, or that, that can mitigate uh, the, the effect. But somehow we get to these uh, pretty broad political effects, election results between the main two uh, parties, um, expenditures um, at the, the government uh, level. So how do we get from there, uh, how do we get to there from these kind of more immigration specific views um, or, or attitudes. One story, because I'm thinking I'm comparing it to, say, in Europe, where there's an obvious kind of anti-immigration party that you could support in many uh, places, um, uh, or, you know, people might look at like referendum effects where there's kind of more direct um, uh, angle in, in people's minds from Im immigration to their political behavior. So um, one story is that this is kind of an, it is an immigration specific thing. It moves some people's immigration views, move them to uh, another party uh, or change, you know, their uh, views of local government. But another is that this is just one thing that's making people more conservative uh, overall uh, or siding with 
uh, the right uh, over the left. Um, do, do we have any way of parsing that or which do you think it is? That's a, that's a great question. And we, I see this as an area of opportunity to keep looking at exactly what is driving this conservative response. And I, and I absolutely agree that there can be two interpretations to this. This might be just a, simply an anti-migrant response. And there's probably some truth to that. I, I don't think that this is like a fully, this, this can be answered by fully one or, or the other uh, explanation, but, but that's one. And the other one is that there might be something, some um, idea or prejudice attached to this group that correlates well with, with, uh, with conservatism, but that is not necessarily anti-migrant itself, right? Um, for example, as I said, this, this idea of somehow not being, um, somehow breaking the law, right? Maybe people, maybe some people would be okay with migration, but they might be, um, they might be adverse to irregular migration, right? Because in, in their minds, and I, I should stress this, there is an easy, uh, way to come to the U.S., uh, you know, regularly, right? Uh, th- that's, that's as we know, very complicated. Um, so the idea is, well, if there, if, um, there was an, uh, if there was a way for migrants to come here in a, in a, in a documented and authorized way, I'll be fine with that. Um, so, so it's also, it's hard, it's hard to, to disentangle, but I think that should be the next thing to do, to try to see where, where, uh, the variation comes, comes from. And, yeah, as I said, a challenge of the of the U.S. Um, political landscape is that it is a two-party system, and these two parties capture preferences in a lot of different dimensions. So um, the advantage of study of studying a European setting is that there are parties that, dif- that differ in in dimensions by by margin, by a little bit in in this and that dimension. So it's easier to to approximate the the reasons for their reaction. Whereas here. We, we, that's why we don't specifically and explicitly call it an anti-migrant response. It's just a, a conservative response. So let me ask about a little about that in relation to the to current events, because uh, the public has moved uh, more against uh, immigration under uh, President Biden. There is lots of attention to unauthorized migration uh, flows um, at the at the southern border. Um, but some of the mechanisms for at least the immigration attitudes were fairly abrupt, like immediately after Biden was elected uh, compared to Trump, uh, immigration had been moving in a very, uh, people had been liberalizing their immigration attitudes, then immediately upon the election, they shifted gears uh, and were more uh, restrictive in their attitudes. Um, and then they became you know, more restrictive maybe as, as they saw uh, migration. Um, so it seems like we're, we're fitting, you're fitting your kind of geographic effects in the context of what is a broader pattern of fairly abrupt, um, you know, p- political thermostatic reaction. Um, so so kind of help me, help me uh, place kind of the broad reaction with your more specific geographic findings. So I would say that, and, and this is really linked to, to the previous question, I would say that a big shortcoming, um, I probably just given that we don't have data and, and this is not a book, it's just a paper, shortcoming or, or an area of opportunity for a paper is the role of the media. 
And I think that if we see migration flows, they clearly increased significantly in the last two years, but they did not increase, um, let's call it discontinuously, once the administration changed. So if attitudes, and uh, taking your premise as, as given, which I have not really seen the attitudes, but taking your premise as given that attitudes kind of change almost discontinuously when the administration changed, then there is something else that might be explaining why attitudes are changing. And I would, I would guess that, that, uh, that the media is playing a big, a big role there. Um, one thing that in, in our setting, these results are robust to controlling for inflows in different parts of, of, of the US. Uh, for example, it seems to be the case that attitudes do not change change based on what's happening in the county, but not on what's happening on the capital of the state or based on what's happening on the, the, the closest, largest metropolitan area. But, but, that, but that's also a little bit challenging to test because maybe people are also reacting. We think that we're really estimating the effects of changes in the local area, but it is possible that changes in the national narrative or in certain areas also have an effect, right? That can be probably well estimated and, and an additional effect to this. And my sense is that if attitudes are changing in parts of the US that are not seeing an increase of migration, well, this is probably because, um, because ideas and, and preferences can be moved by what's happening in, in another part of the, of the country. And that is again, something that I'm, that I'm very interested in, in testing. So, so yeah, a very interesting phenomenon is that if I understand correctly, the bulk of migrants in the past two or three years does not come from Mexico. So it would not show up in our data. We would need a different data. We would need, for example, the uh, uh, to use ACS5 and their residual method uh, to try to map migration um, or migrants across a country. But my guess is that, um, yeah, that this is a, a different, different type of migration. This is something unique. Something kind of unique is happening these years in that the, the composition of, of migration from South and Central America has changed. And now we're seeing more migrants from, for example, Venezuela. So what about the uh, potential for uh, re reverse uh, effects that that uh, might favor Democrats or pro-immigration attitudes? So under Trump, there was a nationwide uh, move toward more pro-immigration attitudes. There was a very uh, visible uh, kids in cages, southern border coverage um, that uh, liberalized attitudes and some people have found affected election results. I know that your paper is kind of framed as if we had zero, here would be the here would be the the uh, here would be the effect on elections versus an increase helping Republicans. But is there any sense that you know the reverse could also be the case that when there is a big uh, cutting off of um, migration that you would see a liberalizing uh, effect? I think that that yeah that that would be that would be interesting to to test and and maybe I would start there by looking at the effect of a decrease in migration or maybe a negative net migration for example on um the 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 labor markets on the local labor markets and and my guess is that maybe that and again 
taking into consideration the role of, of, of political entrepreneurs and the media can really boost support for migration, right? If, for example, we're seeing, and, and I was reading um, an article uh, today, that there is a decrease in labor supply in key industries due to, apparently, uh, restrictive migration and not enough migrants working there. So my sense is that that can can um, generate support for migration, um, not only for more numbers, but for a change in migration policy that would that would allow to have a more stable labor uh, labor supply in those sectors uh, in the short and the, in the medium and, and and long run. So so I would say that that's that's probably one of the one of the mechanisms by which migration could help um, or migration flows could help. Uh, would increase the voucher for for Republicans, uh, for Democrats, sorry, and eventually a change in, in in migration laws. So the other uh, interview for this episode is uh, with Alexander Kustov, and he one of his uh, findings is that uh, at least in Europe, uh, but he believes in the U.S. as well that uh, success of radical right or anti-immigration uh, parties actually moves voters in favor of immigration uh, and uh, immigrants. So um, I know that you didn't necessarily study the, the, the reverse backlash, but how do you think about it as a two-sided uh, uh, phenomenon? Would you think there would be the potential for both backlashes in each direction? So, yeah, what you're describing would be, if I understand correctly, some sort of, of dynamic effect, right? There's, there's, um, there's an inflow of migrants, then there are attitudes that change in an anti-migrant way, which lead, which leads the public to react in a in a more pro-migrant way. I think that is possible again, but since that would be easier to look in Europe because certain par- certain parties are fundamentally the anti-migrant party, and that's it. In the U.S., there is a part there the 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 set of preferences that these two parties. Um, captured are, are um, bundled, right? So it would be harder to test. But I can see how um, maybe a shock, a very, I think that that could really, that could really uh, create a, a, a change, right? A very strong shock to migration could eventually lead to uh, a demand for more migration. Um, but, but, but my prior would be that that would have to be such a visibly, such a large and 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 directly linked, so it would be very hard and linked to migration. That then the response of the electorate should be: we want specifically more migration. And given how parties react, I would think that there could be probably a, an internal response by parties by being more pro-migrant, right? Like that, that would be a more endogenous reaction. Otherwise. It would be kind of suicidal, right, for a party to do something that then it would become so unpopular and then not take a reverse stance. Um, we are seeing in other issues how that has been the case, where a party supported something that the party thought was popular, then the party realized that that was not popular at all, and then the party is being punished by that in, in, in elections, and now certain members of the party are reversing and saying, well, actually, we're not really that opposed to that. 
So, so my sense is that we could see that uh, happening if migration becomes a very salient issue in a different direction. Not, not we want less migration, but we want more migration. Um, and then maybe we would see uh, uh, some sort of, of uh, backtracking from, from said part. Another one of his findings is that um, anti-immigration voters consistently care more about the issue um, than pro-immigration voters um, across the world. Um, and so that might relate um, to, to your findings uh, in the sense that kind of one interpretation is that uh, the whole area, or at least the people who are economically impacted, um, you know, are all kind of moving a little bit rightward and some of them you know, that changes their votes. But another interpretation is there's going to be some kind of a polarizing thing. Some people will like it. Some people won't. Maybe the benefits will be more widely distributed. So everybody will, you know, get a little bit, but, and, and maybe some people will, you know, move in a pro direction while others are moving in an anti-direction, but it's just that, um, you know, it's not motivating for anybody who's uh, pro migration. So what, what do you think of those two potential interpretations? I, I agree. I agree that um, I agree that, that that's that migration plays a, a larger role for certain people, and probably those are the people that are that are that's a variation that 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 is explaining the results. Um, and I think this is evidence in favor of um, or that interpretation supports the evidence that we find for the labor market. Right? Certain people are certain sectors are declining. Uh, formal employment in certain sectors are declining. Formal employment in certain sectors are, is, are or certain formal employment in certain sectors is increasing. So one could say, well, on net, we should observe nothing. But actually, probably the people that are losing their jobs are people that have certain views and people that are um, that are, are are moving to the right. And again, what is interesting, or what I think is not evident is that migration is always a, a, a politically salient topic, even for those people that that really care about it. That that is somehow immutable, because as as uh, our heterogeneity analysis finds, is that maybe these people, maybe people that can be compensated, maybe they would care less about migration eventually. Maybe they care so much about migration because migration in their minds has a certain set of consequences and maybe they leave those consequences themselves. But if they see more migration and those consequences are not there, then maybe migration would become less politically salient. Now, it is true that some people might be, might care more about migration, but also might care about specific type of migration, right? Maybe people would care less if migrants, and this is something that, that I think we've seen in the literature, if migrants have certain characteristics that are that align with with their personal characteristics. Uh, that's something that, for example, Marco Tabellini found that migrants that come from players that came from places in Europe in the early 20th century uh, that had, I think, the same religion or or not a large linguistic distance. Then maybe uh, then the reaction against those migrants were uh, was uh, was more muted. So what I would say, uh, going going back to the question, is that. Yes, it's probably true that only some people are moving, uh, that are generating these effects. But my guess is that even the um, the preferences of those people could be changed with policy that are not not immutable.
So the policy implication that you discuss in the paper uh, is about, you know, the ability of state and local governments to uh, potentially uh, minimize uh, these effects. Um, but there's a much more uh, direct <laughs> policy implication uh, that would be that, you know, Biden's negotiating right now to strengthen um, uh, border enforcement and he should go all in because uh, it's going to benefit him directly electorally in the next election. So how, how do you think about that and how should political observers or practitioners interpret your findings? I think that hinges on one assumption, and the assumption is that that would dramatically reduce migration. I think that is unclear. I think that, um, as Michael Clement said, migration is like a $1 billion uh, bill on the street. We know that the re economic returns to migration are very large. So the cost would have to change so much for people around the world, not just in the U.S., but around the world, for migration to, to stop. Now, I'm not saying that migration cannot be organized and, and migration cannot be um, controlled and that the numbers cannot uh, decline because I think, again, the migration numbers that we're seeing right now are, are very large, even for U.S. standards. So one uh, one interpretation of your results is kind of consistent with a pretty pessimistic view of people's uh, view of, of migration and kind of the overall literature. But another um, is that, you know, you find pretty rational reactions here. Um, these are people reacting to things happening in their communities. The people who are mostly affected um, are the people who are reacting uh, more. Um, and so maybe this isn't, you know, people just reacting to media stories or hyped up uh, controversy. How, how, how should we interpret it kind of along that dimension? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, if, if anything, as I said, I want to explore the role of the media, but we think that these effects are the reaction to inflows in their communities. And yeah, people are reacting, but what I want to highlight is that maybe the things that the media is highlighting are not things that are happening at the local level, right? So it's not true that people are voting more for the Republican Party and, 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 and local governments are increasing the expenditure in police and the administration of justice because there is more crime. I mean, we cannot really see the relationship between one another, but we see that these things, like, we see, we don't see more crime and we see more expenditure in one thing, in, in, in policing and the administration of justice. It's not true that people are losing their jobs because unemployment rates are not changing. So, so, so I think I can see why the, an external reader, or a reader can see these results as, as pessimistic. But I would encourage the reader to read until the end of the paper and see that there is policy that that um, that that mitigates the response that we're seeing. For a broader global view, we now turn to my interview with Alexander Kustoff, who's recently found a backlash to hard right anti-immigration politics, but also has found some reasons why anti-immigration politics resonates. Here's my interview with Alexander. So what were the biggest findings and takeaways from your new public opinion quarterly article, Reverse Backlash? So in short, we find that after radical right and anti-immigration parties win elections, voters tend to support immigration more. Um, so a lot of people are rightly worried about the so-called immigration backlash, right? The idea that any significant pro-immigration 
advancement, whether it's in terms of kind of being friendlier to immigrants or having more immigrants around can be counterproductive because it's going to help radical right parties and politicians come to power and sort of kind of, you know, crack down on all, on the, all those advancements and more. In our paper, what we do is we look at what happens to public attitudes toward immigration after that, right? And we start with the premise that politics is a dynamic game where a lot of people disagree with each other and for every action, there is a country action, right? Uh, so in our case, the success of populist and anti-immigration parties might signify that there is a lot of voters who are dissatisfied with how the government is handling the issue, but does really mean that the public itself become more opposed to immigration. If anything, we find it's the opposite. Basically, for every voter who uh, dislikes immigration, there is another one who dislikes anti-immigration politics and populist politicians even more probably. So you study 24 European countries over several uh, decades, um, but uh, give us some of the names and, um, and predominant trends that people might be able to connect to this uh, to. What, what's been happening uh, in Europe over these decades? Yeah, so I would say that in Europe in general, there has been a pretty steady rise in populist radical right parties with some increase of positive attitudes. Um, there was some pause in radical right success just before COVID. Uh, but with the recent success of the Freedom Party in the Netherlands, uh, uh, you know, the Swedish Democrats, the IFD in Germany, you know, it's sort of kind of all back in the news right now. Um, of course, all of this kind of general trends that mask all of those important differences between countries. So in, if I remember correctly, I think in Italy and a lot of the Eastern Europe, for instance, we've been, um, you know, can experience a lot of growth of both radical right and anti-immigration attitudes at the same time. While in Western Europe, uh, the picture is much more mixed. Uh, it's also important to know that in the background of all that, there has been a significant increase in the immigration numbers, um, including the two major refugee waves, right? Also a lot of ambiguous uh, policy change where countries are trying to stop humanitarian migrants and externalize border control, but also at the same time trying to open up to skilled immigration. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on with immigration in Europe and more generally. So you find that uh, radical right uh, party uh, success uh, makes immigration attitudes move leftward, um, but it doesn't change uh, economic conservatism or other views. Um, so help us kind of contextualize that, especially the American-centric um, listeners. Um, you know, do these parties stand out only on immigration? Um, what other kinds of effects would you expect? Um, and are they concentrated where there's been a real policy change in immigration um, or where the major parties are responding to these radical right parties? Right. So as usually depends on a particular country, but I think it would be fair to say that a lot of those parties are primarily anti-immigration parties. Some of them might have conservative views on like gender and sexuality, but very few would challenge kind of the uh, predominant economic policies of the mainstream parties. And even if they do it, they it's usually all about excluding immigrants from those welfare benefits as opposed to kind of constraining those benefits in general. Um, yeah, so it's a mixed bag. But, you know, that's why in the paper we just use it as a placebo check because we don't really expect, uh, you know, people react uh, to the success of those parties in any way in terms of changing their economic ideology. And are they, when they succeed, are they really changing policy and making it more restrictive? Or is this just kind of a rhetorical rise of uh, anti-immigrant uh, uh, views that's, that's causing these changes in public opinion? Yeah, so my view on that is that it's a mixed bag. There is some evidence that they're not quite successful. 
uh, obviously themselves in terms of changing any uh, policies or attitudes. Uh, I think there is some research that looks at what, what happens to mainstream parties, whether they adopt their rhetoric and policy positions and whether it, uh, uh, you know, kind of causes any change. I think uh, in general, if there's any effect of those parties in terms of kind of uh, long stream and downstream immigration policy, it's due to uh, the changing policy positions of the mainstream parties. And there's some limited evidence to that, but I don't think there is much going on in that respect. So uh, give us a sense of what the analysis was. I know you had these um, 24 countries um, you're uh, looking at uh, within uh, country changes. Um, what, what did you actually do uh, to, to analyze this? Right. So we are looking at basically, you know, just a time series cross-sectional data set where we have, you know, some kind of indicator of aggregate public opinion as an outcome. And then, you know, some indicator of uh, radical right success as an independent variable, we try to, you know, be as, uh, you know, open to various interpretations and operationalizations of how we uh, kind of think about both of those things. Uh, but uh, what we find is that regardless of how you actually define those, uh, you know, dependent independent variables, there is always like a positive relationship, you know, the, the one that we find. But you also have some countries uh, with very little uh, radical right party success in your data set, um, but still some aggregate changes in immigration uh, views. Um, so I guess what what else would you expect to be in the in the model for for driving these changes? Yeah, so I mean, I certainly think that the this kind of pro immigration reaction that we uh, to the populist success that we document is not a primary reason behind any kind of robust attitudinal change. Uh, to the extent it may exist in some countries. So in my other backlash paper from the Journal of European Public Policy and my upcoming book, I show that policy change is probably one of the main sources of long-term attitudinal change. Uh, so the idea is basically when governments pass programmatic pro-immigration policies that are largely in line with public opinion, it can help generate and sustain more support for immigration, basically. Um, obviously, you know, the underlying reality of uh, immigration itself is important. I'm not so sure about the immigration levels themselves. So there's a, it's a mixed bag. Basically, if we just look at it cross-sectionally, like most of the places with very pro-immigration attitudes are usually very um, high on like immigrants themselves, right? So places like London, <laughs> all of the kind of urban cosmopolitan places, uh, obviously the causal um, identification here is very tricky. But I think what we do see is that any kind of large scale and rapid immigration flow or change in the immigrant population can uh, certainly increase the salience of the issue. And as my co-authors, you know, James Dennison and Andrew Geddes show in their political quarterly piece, uh, it can actually be even more politically consequential than kind of people's underlying opinion. So, you know, just in terms of, again, the correlation, people's uh, sense of how important immigration is to them is usually more correlated with uh, the success of radical right than, you know, how many people actually oppose immigration to begin with. So you contrast your uh, story with uh, one uh, emphasizing social norms and the end of stigma. So kind of play out why there might pe be people who would have expected the opposite of what you uh, find and, you know, whether you think it doesn't materialize at all or it's just kind of canceled out by, by other factors. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's some good evidence for the negative normative impacts of radical rights success from both uh, the U.S. and Europe. Um, and my, my reading of all of those things is usually they're confined 
to voters who already oppose immigration. The idea here is that when you support those partisan candidates and they are successful, you're like now more emboldened to actually express your views publicly, right? And be kind of more openly uh, anti-immigration and even like discriminate folks in the public. Uh, so it's very concerning uh, and we certainly don't want to dismiss that, but we also believe that kind of the potential countervailing and aggregate effects are important as well. Uh, so in our paper, we don't focus on how the radical right success may impact different voters in a different way, mostly due to data limitations. Uh, but this would certainly be a great follow-up uh, if there are any grad students around um, listening to this podcast. I mean, if someone has good kind of cross-national longitudinal data where, you know, we interview the same people over time, I think that would be great. Um, yeah, and uh, obviously, you know, we do see that uh, the success of radical right is polarizing the electorate ideologically, right? So there was this really great paper, if I remember correctly, by in AJPS by Daniel Bishop and Marcus Wagner that shows precisely that, uh, that when, you know, uh, populist and radical right parties enter parliament, uh, people become more uh, ideologically polarized after that. So how well do you think your your story fits your Ameri- fits the American case? I know that um, the, the data doesn't uh, stretch to um, the United States, but certainly uh, Trump's rise and success uh, within the Republican Party and nationally seems to have produced something of a pro-immigration backlash. Do you think uh, the story fits and was it for the same reasons? Yeah, I think, you know, the American case fits our story pretty well. In fact, I mean, one of the biggest motivations for our paper was exactly the somewhat surprising pro-immigration dynamic that we observed during the Trump years. And also a similar pro-immigration shift uh, some folks documented post-Brexit in the UK. Um which is also Brexit itself is not in our data set, right? Um, so what we wanted to do basically is to see whether it generalizes the same dynamic to a much broader set of elections and countries. Um, and it seemed, <laughs> yeah, it seems, you know, that to generalize pretty well. Uh, I think, you know, a good uh, kind of follow-up research to that would obviously extending this data to like OECD countries more generally, right? Again, kind of incorporating the US case, Canada, Australia, many other countries and see whether it, you know, would still check out or not. So somewhat like uh, clockwork, as soon as Biden was elected, immigration attitudes uh, seem to be moving uh, back rightward um, uh, under uh, Democrats. Um, And, you know, that suggests, at least to me, that there was some expectations that immigration policy would change under Biden. Then there were some actual changes in policy and immigration flows. what do you see in, in Europe? Uh, do you see that when the radical right is defeated uh, or when it, it goes down uh, in power um, that, that you see more anti-immigration attitudes or is, is that uh, kind of more traditional uh, backlash not present? Yeah, um, I actually think that, you know, the increase of stated public opposition to immigration during Biden is a very important country trend that is worth emphasizing more. I feel like a lot of folks, including Immigration researchers and advocates and stakeholders have still not quite internalized it fully. So in you know my uh, JOP paper that we actually finished in 2019, which feels like a long time ago, we show that uh, you know attitudes are generally stable, and we caution the readers in the conclusion that the recent pro-immigration trends in the Trump uh, years uh, that you described may not last very long. And I remember you know the reviewers were very skeptical, but I think ultimately were proven right. Um, and so even now I see constantly people share this famous Gallup immigration attitudes chart with the presumption that, the, uh, you know, that immigration attitudes can only go up and be more positive. But again, if you add like, a confidence intervals to it, it's like my pet peeve, right? 
and account for recent increases in negativity during Biden, politicization, partisan polarization over the issue. I'm not sure the picture is as optimistic on immigration anymore, right? And so when it comes to similar dynamic in Europe, I think this should totally apply to I don't think there were as many prominent defeats of the far right after they were already in power. Um, but I would definitely be on the lookout of what's happening in the UK after, you know, Labour presumably um, uh, takes control of the government and, you know, what happens in the Netherlands in the next election in Sweden, for sure. So the other uh, paper for this episode is about the more traditional um, uh, backlash, um, especially uh, with respect to, to new measures of unauthorized Mexican migration. Um, and they find that uh, that increases Republican support um, and does so through both an economic and prejudice um, kind of uh, mechanism. So I, I guess how, that, that seems more, con- more like the traditional backlash that people have in mind. How would you fit your story in with that? Yeah, so, I mean, I saw Ernesto's great paper and, you know, when it comes to immigration, the causal identification is always very tricky. So, I mean, kudos <laughs> for that. I, th- I mean, I think uh, his evidence makes sense. I don't think it contradicts our evidence much. Um, uh, I mean, I think in general, even correlationally, there's a lot, a lot of data that we have that people just may react negatively to any demographic change or policy they don't like, uh, you know, politically by voting for different parties and whatnot. Um, I think it would be interesting to see. I don't think he had immigration attitudes as an outcome. I think it would be interesting to see what happens uh, and if the increases in unauthorized immigration that he documents uh, that, you know, are exogenous to some extent, right? So whether they also lead to more negative immigration attitudes, which I would expect to, um, but can be a good follow-up. I think it's also important to emphasize that I think that paper focuses on unauthorized immigration in particular, which is, you know, is important. Part of the story, especially in the U.S., but not the whole thing. Uh, there is some evidence, uh, if I remember, by Stephen Liao and colleagues in Nature Human Behavior, uh, where they showed that exogenous local increases in legal and skilled immigration make people actually more positive toward immigration, right? So, as usual, you know, the devil is in details. Um, you know, as I also do in my other backlash paper in the Journal of European Public Policy, I would also differentiate between people's reactions to immigrant presence and particular kind of immigrant flows and potentially like the policies that affect those flows and the reactions to like political rhetoric and the party system in general, which we focus more on our, uh, in our paper, right? So these are obviously very, you know, kind of related things, but still kind of distinct. So, you know, it's possible that people might react negatively to immigrant presence, but not rhetoric or the other way around. So you mentioned in the paper that this is a potential case of thermostatic uh, reaction or related to theories of thermostatic politics, uh, where policy moves uh, voters in the opposite direction. So, of course, we have canonical evidence from especially from spending uh, that when spending goes up, people's preference uh, for more spending goes down and, and vice versa. Um, but it seems like this is a different case in, in several different ways. So how would you kind of compare your story to that uh, baseline model? Yeah, I, I remember when we just like published the paper, a bunch of people quote tweeted it with like a thermostat <laughs> picture. Yeah, so you know, my understanding of the original thermostatic theory as proposed by like Chris Bleasian is all about how people react to policy changes in terms of their stated relative preferences, right? So if government increases spending, for example, voters are more likely to say that they want it reduced, right? Which doesn't necessarily mean that they change their absolute preferences in terms of the ideal amount of spending. Uh, I thought like there's some tendency of just kind of 
assume that anything uh, that goes back and forth is sort of like thermostatic. Uh, uh, so our story, I think, is more in line with some interpretations of the thermostatic model uh, that take into account kind of belief cues and like basically how people learn about policy changes to begin with. Uh, so basically, it means that um, in our case, the thermostat is not really about people's ideal policy views on immigration, but more about the direction of the party system and what constitute an acceptable opinion in the political environment, right? Um, so in the UK, that would be, for instance, like, you know, the average voter probably thought that Trump went a little bit too far when it comes to immigration, um, while Biden is not doing enough on the issue, right? Despite the fact that, you know, a lot of stuff happening, a lot of policy changes, uh, a lot of changes in numbers, you know, border encounters, things like that. But I think that the overall vibe is sort of like Trump was anti-immigration, so we need less of that. Trump, Biden is pro-immigration, so we need kind of uh, less of that too. So that's the idea. So it, it, it is different, but it doesn't sound like the mechanism is necessarily that distinct. Um, I mean, it could, couldn't voters here basically be reacting to uh, real or expected policy change, just that, you know, when the radical right gains power, um, you know, if you're somebody who wanted immigration reduced, um, maybe you're just assuming that, um, you know, there, there's already enough pressure to do that, at least some of those people. And then people who had wanted it uh, stable might feel like, well, actually now there's even more uh, reason that we, we need to emphasize our, our pro-immigration views. Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. I mean, so, you know, in my other backlash paper, I'm looking at how people react to actually pro-immigration policy changes whether, you know, there's any thermostatic reaction. I'd actually find there is none. So when government pass, so I do subset it for like, you know, kind of programmatic pro-immigration policy changes when it comes to kind of increasing legal family and uh, work migration. So it's not like all migration, right? And I find that if anything, you know, when governments pass those pro-immigration reforms, people become more positive, right? So there's no thermostatic reaction at all, right? Uh, it's possible that when, people just imply or they might not know about those reforms or whatnot, uh, right? But it seems like I think the party system uh, and party cues here are very important, uh, you know, to the overall story. It's really hard to kind of uh, single them out. Otherwise, you know, we know that from a lot of research, people are not very knowledgeable about the political system, you know, for a good reason. They have other things to do in their lives. Uh, that's why actually I'm a huge fan. Uh, there's like a one interpretation of thermostatic model by one of my colleagues, Mel, Atkinson at UNC Charlotte, she recently had a book at Cambridge Elements where they uh, proposed the implied thermostatic model, which I think is more um, in line with what we're talking about, too. So in other work, uh, you've found that anti-immigration uh, voters uh, tend to care more about the issue uh, than pro-immigration voters. Um, but it seems like uh, this is not contradictory, but at least um, a different uh, kind of story um, where you know, at least with radical right party rise, maybe uh, people uh, might start to care more uh, about the issue on the pro-immigration side. Um, so do you think uh, that there's any tension there? And uh, is it possible that what you found in the other paper is is just more about the anti-immigration side usually losing uh, because of immigration um, increasing um, and sort of that the, the losing side is more mobilized? Yeah. So, I mean, in my mind, it's all connected and uh, not contradictory at all. Uh, so I do think that, you know, in terms of how much someone cares about issues may change and the prospect of loss uh, can certainly be mobilizing. And actually exploring this right now in the follow-up research with the Russell Sage Foundation. Um, 
But you know what I find in my British Journal of Political Science paper is that people who happen to be anti-immigration for whatever reason, they are always considering it more personally, nationally important than those who happen to like it. And what was fascinating to me is that it's virtually true across all years in countries uh, that we have data on, no matter how you measure it, and regardless of whether anti-immigration side is actually losing in a particular context. Uh, so I think this is just some, something more primal, psychological. Uh, I think it is related to the idea that kind of loss and threat is more mobilizing than the potential gains of immigration. I think it would be interesting to uh, think about what happens when actually uh, it's not, you know, it's not, we're not just talking about the success of radical right, but actually they take over completely. Maybe that's something that's going to change things a little bit. Uh, but I haven't seen that. I, so I didn't, you know, do the test that you proposed or anything, but I, I would be skeptical, but I think that that's an interesting idea for sure. So one uh, thing we didn't talk about in relationship to the other uh, paper is that there's kind of this uh, long running, I don't know if it's a debate, but a question about the extent to which um, anti-immigration views are driven by economic circumstances or prejudice and some um, sense, some findings that they go together that economic circumstances might relate, but um, be primarily acting through uh, uh, prejudice. Um, so what, how do you think about it in relation to the other direction? Um, is it possible that voters are learning about economic implications here? Do you view this as primarily kind of a social cultural attitude unrelated to economic circumstances? Yeah. So I personally don't like this debate. I think it's much more uh, illuminating to think about sociotropic versus egotropic perceptions and causes as opposed to cultural versus economic. And the idea here is that it's more about whether people care about what's happening to them personally, as opposed to what's happening to their country or community as a whole. Uh, and I think those things can both be cultural and economic. I think a lot of people, and there's a lot of research on that shows that, you know, people don't really distinguish those things really neatly in their minds, right? So uh, if you are concerned about the impacts, the negative impacts on immigration on your community and your country, uh, a, lot, a lot of it can be about the proliferation of foreign languages that you don't like, you know, something uh, can be about, you know, kind of different cultural values, right? Uh, or something can be about kind of, you know, economic and job losses of others uh, in your community. So I, I don't, I think uh, a lot of those things are not as uh, separated as we want them to be. I think a lot of this research that tries to separate cultural and economic factors, it just looks at like, you know, uh, subsequent survey questions that, uh, you know, ask about like economic things or cultural things. But in the end of the day, you know, if you plug them in, uh, in a correlation, they are very highly correlated and a part of the same underlying dimension. So I personally don't think there is much going on, uh, you know, between cultural and economic factors. I mean, there is also some interesting research that shows that, um, you know, cultural uh, and kind of prejudice factors can be activated by economic uh, losses too. So, I mean, they're interrelated too. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there is nothing there, but I think for me, I think it's uh, more important to talk about like, you know, sociotropic versus egotropic factors, to be honest. So you said you could reconcile all of your work together, but you also have a, a important work that shows that uh, immigration attitudes are remarkably stable. Um, and then you're investing a lot of energy in showing what happens when they when they change. So how, how would you reconcile that that kind of usual st stability, especially in response to kind of changes in the political environment with uh, the potential for backlash that you find? Yeah. So, you know, our stability paper in the uh politics is, you know, pretty nuanced. So I think and now it holds even more true than before, I would say. Um, and so what we find there specifically is that attitudes are stable within individuals, right, and robust to various kind of shocks. 
uh, right in longitudinal data. Uh, and mostly because, you know, they're probably rooted in like those kind of stable personality traits and predisposition that we know are stable. Uh, so what that means in practice is that if we interview the same people over and over again across many years, right, they might slightly change their stated opinion for some question in response to various events like, you know, the recession or the success of radical right parties for that matter, right? But they will more likely than not to go back to their initial position in the end. Uh, and that's what we observe there. Uh, you know, we do uh, acknowledge that those short-term shifts that we also document in this reverse backlash paper may be important, especially if it happens within the same electoral cycle just before the elections, for instance. Um, but, um, you know, uh, it's important to understand that those attitudes are still generally stable. Um, and we also show that, you know, young people in particular can change their attitudes, right? So if someone is socialized during the Trump years as opposed to the Biden years, you know, they might uh, come to view immigration differently just because of that. And I think this is very important too for the long-term change in opinion, right? Uh, another thing that we also acknowledge is that even though attitudes are generally stable, even in the long run, so obviously if there is a very significant institutional change or a shock, like there's like literally a revolution in the country, right? I think people might... <laughs> change their attitudes toward immigration, if not other things, for sure. So anything you want to tout about what's uh, next for you or anything we didn't get to that you want to include? Two things. Uh, so first, um, I'm going to finish up my first book manuscript right now entitled In Our Interest, How to Make Immigration Popular, uh, which is the culmination of a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about today. Um, so in short, I argue that the only way to make immigration popular is actually to implement better immigration policies for governments that people can actually see are working for them in the long run. In other words, there is no easy behavioral fix, right? You cannot just change the way you talk about immigration or educate people that immigration is actually good. You have to show it to them. Um, so stay tuned. Um, it's going to come out hopefully soon. And what, uh, are the, and what are the national level cases for that book? Uh, global it's all global but uh i actually think for me the most convincing evidence comes from my qualitative comparison of canada and sweden which uh where i think so canada has basically the most clear kind of demonstrably beneficial set of immigration policies where like people you know who are regularly not really knowledgeable of politics actually know about the system that is point-based and it's like supposed to be designed in their interest while in sweden it's basically the other way around uh where uh there is no even like rhetorical allusion to national interest usually uh, until very recently, and uh, despite the fact that, you know, Sweden is like the most cosmopolitan country in the world, uh, people are not really happy with the way the government is handling immigration there. So, you know, there is a limit to how much you can do on immigration just based on kind of humanitarian intentions alone, um, you know, just because, you know, in fact, there are very few people who actually adhere to those kind of humanitarian impulses. And even those folks, uh, as I show, they usually care about national interests more than anything else. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center, and I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next, linked on our website. Anti-immigration politics is California's past, the Republicans' future. Is white identity causing a backlash against immigration? Republicans successfully politicized Ebola, can they do it again? Values and racism in American immigration views. And how does the public move right when policy moves left? Thanks to Ernesto Tiburcio and Alexander Kustoff for joining me. Please check out The Local Reaction to Unauthorized Mexican Migration to the U.S. and Reverse Backlash, and then listen in next time. Mm -hmm.